Good morning. I could preach to that being sung right before I preach every single time. I think they would remove it from the repertoire, but I keep saying that every time they sing it. If you have your Bibles, uh, you'll want to turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, because of course last week we were in chapter 4. You've noticed I followed this really well. And uh, actually, when we're done with 1 Thessalonians, the last sermon will be chapter 3 on Labor Day. Uh, I've never really done that before, and I don't really intend to do it again. It's just the way the scheduling has worked out, because I'm trying to work like last week, uh, Sam and Andrew preached with me, and I think uh, next week or the week after, Andrew's preaching with me. And so we're trying to do this based on our schedules which has not proved to be very easy, which is why we're not going in order. But today we're in 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 to 18. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, we just thank you that your words, your ancient words, challenge us, encourage us, gently reprove us, We ask, Father, that you would take your inspired, inerrant word and impart it to our hearts and our lives. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. If you've been at Highland any length of time, you probably heard me use the words I just prayed, and I pray them often. I use the words inspired and inerrant. Inspired means God breathed. Inspired means that God carries people along. So we read in 1 Peter 1, 21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we mean by the idea of inspiration. God uses those individuals he wants to record scripture to say exactly what he wills them to say, and yet they use their circumstances, they use their experiences, they use their vocabulary, and that's all part of divine inspiration. Inerrancy, its twin cousin, means that the veracity, the truthfulness of scripture is there that what is said is 100% true. It actually happened. It's recorded exactly as God wills it. So the psalmist says in Psalm 119, 96, to all perfection I see a limit, but your commands are boundless. There's nothing about your commands that have error in them. That's the twins of inspiration and inerrancy. As I think about these, I think about the spade of archaeology. And I'm going to take a moment and share just a few of the finds that gives us confidence. There are hundreds of these finds, but today I'm going to share four in the beginning and one in the end. Five archaeological finds that should give us confidence in the truthfulness of God's Word. In the Old Testament... 
you and I will read the word Hittite or Hattite 50 times. It's a people group. For instance, in Genesis chapter 23, when Abraham's wife Sarah, also called Sarai, dies, he is about 20 miles south in Hebron, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, and it is there that he buys a cave, the cave of Machpelah, which today is called the cave of the forefathers. It's a cave where the patriarchs are buried. He buys it from Ethlen the Hittite. So he buys it from one of these Hittite people. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, and there we have King David. And King David has an immoral relationship, an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And the text tells us that she is married to Uriah the Hittite. But here's the problem. Most of history knows nothing about Hittites or Hevites, as they're alternatively called. In fact, not until 1906 did we know outside of Scripture of any people group called the Hittites. And so older commentaries and books by those who disavow the truthfulness of Scripture, they will tell us that the Hittites are a figment of biblical imagination. But then in 1906, we discovered the Hittite nation in Akara, Turkey. We then discovered a much bigger Hittite nation 20 miles south of Jerusalem in Hebron, exactly where Abraham bought the cave where he buried his wife Sarai. And today we have more documentation of the Hittites than we know what to do with. It took history 3,000 years for the spade of archaeology to catch up to what the Bible declared was true 50 times over. I think of King David. King David's kind of a big deal in the Bible, isn't he? I mean, we have 1 Samuel and we have 2 Samuel. And, and let's be honest, without King David, we don't have Jesus. Because Jesus is of the lineage of David. He is the greater David. That's the whole point of Matthew chapter 1. But this is the problem. We know nothing about David outside the Bible. It is not until, listen to this date, 1993. 1993 at Tel Dan. Some of you, many of you have been to Tel Dan with me. Uh, Jordan, the river, means Dan descends. It's where you have four springs that bubble up out of the water that form the Jordan that goes the length of Israel. In 1993, Dr. Avraham discovered a stella, which is a stone with carving on it, from the king of Aramean, who says that he defeated the king of Israel and the king of the house of David. That was such a big deal that on August 6, 1993, 
it made the front page of the New York Times. Since then, we have found a lot of things with David's name in Syria, in Turkey, and in fact, in the Afal, which is just outside the Temple Mount, we are presently digging up the palace of David. But it isn't until 1993 that we know anything about David outside of Scripture. Now with the spade of archaeology, lots of things. But it took 3,000 years for history in the spade of archaeology to catch up to what the Bible told us was true time and time again. I think about the transmission of Scripture. If you know anything about the transmission of Scripture, how it's transmitted through the ages, you know that nobody has argued anything against the New Testament. Not really. We have 6,000 ancient New Testament documents. We have many times over more documents of the New Testament than we have documents of the Civil War from 1860 to 1865. We have many times more documents of the New Testament than any Shakespeare or all of Shakespeare combined. We have more ancient New Testament documents than any other document anywhere in antiquity in the world. So nobody's argued against the transmission of the New Testament. But that has not been true of the Old Testament. In fact, we have several thousand New Testament documents older than the oldest Old Testament document, which was only 1000 AD, the Leningrad text. You see, with the Old Testament, when you would make a copy, when the copy was done, you destroyed the original. And so we didn't have any old copies of the Old Testament, and that caused many people who didn't believe in the transmission of Scripture to say, while the New Testament is assured, the Old Testament is probably riddled with errors. But from 1946 to 1964, we discovered either 12 or 13 caves called the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran Caves, and we came up with 230 and still growing manuscripts, as well as 50 to 60,000 Old Testament fragments. And now we're going to find out, because the Dead Sea Scrolls are 1,200 years older than the oldest text we have in the Old Testament, the Leningrad text. And when we made the comparisons, we discovered that God carefully saw to the transmission of his word so that we not only say that it is inspired, it is God-breathed, but it is inerrant. It is without error. And nobody can argue any longer against the immaculate transmission of God's word. Closer to home, at least politically, is the Mernepta Stel. If you know anything about what goes on politically, and I'm sure you do, you know that it is very popular to say with the British mandate of 1947 and 48 that the Jews received land that they did not historically own and that the land they received is much larger than they have historically occupied. But that is not true. That is terribly untrue. The Mernepta Stel, which is a seven-foot-long stone covered with hieroglyphics, it is 3,200 years old, 
by the Pharaoh after his name, he tells us that the Jews of Israel occupied land that actually exceeds the land that they have today, and it is exactly the same size that Scripture says. Even more remarkable, three scholars, doctors Gorg, Veen, and Thies, have found an even older Egyptian manuscript. It's housed in the Berlin Egyptian Museum in Berlin. It's 3,400 years old, which again gives us the boundaries of the Jews occupying Israel, which exceeds the boundaries that Israel has today, and again corresponds to the boundaries that Scripture tells us that they occupied. Again, the spade of archaeology validates the inspiration, the God-breathedness, and the inerrancy, the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture. And that's something that the Thessalonians stood firm upon. Let me pick up in 1 Thessalonians 2. I want to read verses 13 to 16. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Some of you know the name Dr. B.B. Warfield. He was one of the great Princetonian theologians of 120, 130 years ago when Princeton was the greatest seminary on the planet. And he had a statement, and the statement was this. When Scripture speaks, God speaks. Isn't that exactly what Paul says? You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Today we're going to primarily focus on that first phrase. They accepted the word of God, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. And we've got to step back and ask ourselves, do we, do you, do I, do we accept Scripture as the Word of God? If we do, it is to transform our lives. If we do, then Scripture is going to shape our mores, our values, our attitudes, our actions, our thoughts. When Scripture speaks, we believe. When Scripture demands, we obey. When Scripture says avoid, we avoid. If we believe that this is the inspired and errant word, as I believe many here do, then this book will transform our lives. When we come together, we know that God is speaking through his word. Certainly, we have a finite, fallible deliverer, but when we read scripture, we have an infinite infallible word from God to penetrate our hearts and to transform 
our lives. Is it any wonder that Paul begins verse 13 by saying, we constantly thank God for you because they believed in the inspired and errant word. Isn't that also how he begins the book? Verse 2, chapter 1. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then following both times, chapter 1 and chapter 2, where Paul gives thanks, he goes on to say that one of the reasons he gives thanks is because they stand on the Word of God. They believe God's Word to be inspired. They believe God's Word to be inerrant. They believe God's Word to transform lives. And so Paul says, because of that belief, and because evidence of that belief in your lives, I give thanks for you. This truth is emphasized over and over again. Let me read verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. He says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and this is the part that matters, right, for us. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. No wonder Paul gives thanks. He said, there's affliction. There's winds of travail against you. The people are standing against the truth. They're standing against your transformed lives. But we give thanks because you believe in the inspired and errant word. And it's transforming you in spite of the difficulties all around you. And let's remember, being a Christ follower in Thessalonica in AD 50 and 51 was no picnic. Remember how long Paul lasted there? He came there, he founded the church, and 21 days later, three weeks later, he had to flee for his life. Or he would have been a martyr in AD 50 instead of a martyr in AD 66. So this is no easy place to be. There's persecution. And Paul says, you stood firm. You stood firm. Let me read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2 again. He said, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind. Now think about it. He's saying, I give thanks for you all because you stand firm on the inspired and errant word of God in the face of affliction, the kind of affliction that we faced. We were there only three weeks and had to flee from our lives. The kind of affliction that Jesus Christ faced and he was crucified on the cross. The kind of affliction that the prophet faced. Let's consider just one prophet. Consider Jeremiah. We know a lot about Jeremiah. We call him the weeping prophet. You want to have a pick-me-up today? Read Lamentations. Yeah. Lamentations is a difficult book. It's all the laments of a man who preached for 60 years and may have had one or two converts that we know of. 60 years. Read Jeremiah. No wonder he's called the weeping prophet. He served under five kings, Josiah being the only good one, 
and several really bad ones like Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. These are evil, evil men. And he preached for 60 years. Listen to some of the, the smattering of verses about Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, verse 23. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck that they might not hear and receive instruction. That's what 60 years of preaching in Jeremiah's shoes were like. He preached and everyone stiffened their neck. Nobody listened. They all mocked. The clergy beat Jeremiah up. Let me read from Jeremiah 20, 1 and 2. Now Pasher, the priest, the son of Immer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pasher beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks. How dare you speak the word of God? And so the high priest beats Jeremiah and puts him in stocks. Listen to how some of the other priests react. Jeremiah 26, 11. Then the priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, this man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city. Jeremiah had the boldness to say, we as a nation are living in immorality. We as a nation are living in unethical ways. We as a nation are disappointing and are disapproved by God. And what did they want to do? Put him to death. Then I think of King Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim actually had the original copy of the book of Jeremiah. He's not reading like one of my sermons. I can understand you doing this with one of my sermons. He's got Jeremiah, the original copy. Listen to what he does. Chapter 36, verse 23. As Jehuda read three or four columns, the king, that is Jehoiakim, would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire, in the fire pot, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. The inspired and errant word of God, the original copy of Jeremiah, this king cut up into little strips and burned them entirely. And then towards the end of his life, they caught up to Jeremiah. This is what they did. Jeremiah 38, 6. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Malchiah. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. <laughs> so when Paul says... I give thanks for you guys because you endure the persecution of Christ. You endure the persecution of Paul. You endure the persecution of Jeremiah. We need to realize that the headwinds against the Christ followers in Thessalonica were severe. And yet they stood and believed that the word was inspired. It was God-breathed. It was inerrant. It was truthful. And it had the power to transform and change their lives. And I've got to step back and say, wow, the headwinds aren't that strong. My access to Scripture is a lot more. Am I standing on the inspired and errant word? Or am I allowing the winds of culture and the winds of all sorts of pleasures and the winds of popularity to erode what God's word says to my heart? The Thessalonians said no. I have a couple of friends who have written a book called Evangelical Convictions. And on pages 140 and 41, they wrote this. 
sin, righteousness, and judgment are unfashionable moral categories in our world today. Our world would rather speak of psychological disorders, cultural differences, or genetic determinations. It glories in self-expressive behavior, self-fulfillment, the wrong kind of tolerance with disdain for moral authority and accountability. Talk of sin, righteousness, and judgment is considered impolite and uncivil. But the Bible declares that we are sinful, unrighteous, and under God's judgment. And until we are convicted of this fact, we will never turn to the one who alone can free us from the bondage which that guilt entails. But Jesus promises the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work as we declare the gospel, convicting the world of the truth. In this way, Christ is glorified. The Thessalonians were no stranger to opposition, persecution, and the like, but in spite of it, they stood on the inerrant, inspired word of God. I trust that that is true for you. I pray it is true for me. James, in his epistle, he puts it this way in James 1, verses 19 to 22. He said, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So he begins and says, be slow to speak and quick to hear. Now, he's not really talking about how many words we utter, but I'm going to go there for a moment. Do you know the average American speaks 18,000 words a day? That's a lot of words. That's about a 56-page book every single day. In a year, that would be about 66 books that are 800 pages long, that's how much we speak or text. So we need to make sure that we're bringing glory to God with our words. But when James says, be quick to hear and slow to speak, the context is actually as the word of God is being taught. We have to understand that James is writing in a time period, 1,400 years before Johannes Gutenberg creates the Gutenberg Press. The average person does not have a copy of Scripture. And so they regularly, daily need to come and hear the Word of God. And what James says is, when you hear the Word of God, don't spend the time thinking, well, I don't agree with that. Oh, I need to send a note about that. Oh, I didn't agree with that particular point. He says, be quick to hear, slow to speak. If you're paying attention... There's probably no sermon you will hear that you agree with every word. It's probably just true. But the point of James is not that we hear and agree with every word from a fallible, finite speaker, but that we listen to the word of God coming through and the main points, and we hear these words, and we allow them to transform our lives. That's what James wants. And yet there's some individuals who are contentious. I trust not any here today. People who listen and they say, you know, I don't agree with that. 
or they listen to find an area of theology, generally secondary theology, that they don't quite agree with, and they say, I don't agree with that, so I'm not going to listen. For instance, I think of the end times. If you haven't picked up already, you will in the next few weeks. I happen to be pre-trib and pre-millennial. I'm fairly adamant pre-trib and pre-millennial. But what really matters is not pre-trib and pre-millennial. What matters is that salvation is only by faith in Jesus Christ. What matters is that Jesus is coming back. What matters is that we're all eternal. Some will spend eternity with God in heaven because we believed in Christ alone for salvation. Some will spend eternity separated from Christ in hell because one did not receive Christ as Savior. What matters is that Jesus Christ wins. The rest are details. And we can disagree on a few of those details, but it won't impact our salvation. It won't impact our sanctification. And so those details we can hold with conviction, but we need to have charity one to another on the details that don't impact salvation and sanctification. I think the same way on the issue of predestination and free will, we're all somewhere on the continuum of what we believe. And hopefully what you believe you can square with Scripture. But you know, if we don't agree on that continuum of predestination and free will, it won't affect our salvation or our sanctification. We can have conviction in our hearts, but it shouldn't be a dividing wall of hostility. That's what James is getting at. He says, listen more. Talk less. Don't be angry. Don't be contentious. Allow God's word to penetrate our lives to transform us. We don't listen to messages for the purpose of finding something we disagree with. We listen to the messages to find what God says to our hearts that we can be transformed. So the last part of James is, he says, do not be a hearer, a croatai of the word only, but be a doer as well. A hearer is the word auditor. An auditor, I love auditing, don't you? You go to the lectures until you don't want to. You read the text until you don't want to. Then it just sits on your shelf and everybody thinks you read it. But actually, you just put your name in it. But you get no capping down. You don't graduate. And James's concern is that we might listen to the sermons or messages or lessons and be contentious. James's concern is we might listen with the idea of proving someone wrong, or we might be auditors. We listen, and we grow in head knowledge, but no life transformation. And do you remember the rest of the verse? He said, do not be a hearer of the word only, but a doer as well, lest ye deceive yourself. So when I listen for the purpose of disagreeing, for the purpose of arguing, or for the purpose of growing in head knowledge without life transformation, James says, I deceive myself. 
I deceive myself. Scripture is given that we might be transformed and changed. No wonder Paul wrote to these people facing the winds of travail and the winds of affliction. And he said of these individuals, I thank God for you because you hear the inspired, God-breathed word. You believe it to be true and it allows it to transform your lives. And that's Paul's burden for us. He wants us to hear truth and allow it to transform us. Well, let me close with one more piece of archaeology. This one's rather recent. It's from 2009 right through 2018. Here we have a woman, Dr. Uh, can't remember her name now, Mazur, Elliot Mazur and her team, and they have found 32 bulla. A bulla is a stamp. A bulla is one of those things where if you have a document and then you put hot wax on it, you take the stamp with your name and your title and you push it in, you seal the document, and then when someone gets the document, they say, ooh, that's from, and the stamp will tell them who it's from and the title given. Well, she has found 32 of these in the offal, which is just outside the Temple Mount. And let me just share a few of the ones she's found. It's pretty cool. She found one that said, Jahakul, son of Shelemiah, son of Shovi. And you say, who cares? Except that very name is in Jeremiah 37, 7. And we have never seen that name anywhere else in antiquity, but it's the exact name on the stamp. She has found another one that says Gedaliah, son of Pasher, which is the exact name and title of Jeremiah 38.1. In other words, she is finding stamps that correspond to biblical people that are mentioned only once that are not known anywhere in antiquity, and now we have their stamps. She's found two that are really cool. She's found one that says King Hezekiah, king of Judah, right next to one that really means a lot to me because it's the name of my son, Isaiah, the prophet. And they're side by side, and that's exactly what we'd expect because in 2 Kings 17 all the way to 32, Hezekiah and Isaiah worked hand in hand together to carry out the will of God. And so again, the spade of archaeology all the way into this year is finding these stamps of individuals that are unknown in anywhere except this inspired and errant word. And it gives us confidence. It gives us confidence that God's word is true and it's life-changing, transformational. And that's what Paul wants in my life. It's what he wants in yours as well. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I thank you for people like the prophets and like those in Thessalonica who face the winds of travail and the winds of a society that did not always or even often embrace the truth of Scripture. And yet we have these women and men who stood firm who stood strong as a model for us. 
Father, I thank you that the spade of archaeology hundreds of times has validated the truthfulness of Scripture that gives us confidence to know that this is a God-breathed book, the only God-breathed book, the 66 books, and that it is inerrant without error. And Father, we want to be, as James says, not hearers of the word only, but doers as well, lest we deceive ourselves. So take your word, allow us to be immersed in it, and to be transformed by it for your glory. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.